You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. So whatever I can do to make things best for you. You know, we've been off for a while. We've had some difficulties uh, with the technology and getting in touch with the guests and things like that. But hopefully we'll be back here for a while. And today we're starting off the new year talking about Jesus. I mean, that, that's a great way to start the new year, isn't it? I mean, Jesus, the, the Prince of Peace, the Lamb of God, the one who told us, love your neighbor as yourself, do unto others, you would have them do unto you. I came to bring a sword, and how I wish for your earth was all I came to it. Wait, 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 what? Yeah. Yeah, Jesus said those things also. Believe it or not, there are some people who have some problems with Jesus. And they don't think Jesus really behaves well. You could even say, I think, that it's a case of Jesus behaving badly. Which is, in fact, the name of a book that we're going to be talking about today. And my guest to talk about that is its author, Dr. Mark Strauss. He is a Ph.D. from Aberdeen University, and he's a university professor of New Testament at Bethel Seminary in San Diego. He's served since 1993. He's the author or co-author of various books, including Jesus Behaving Badly, The Puzzling Paradoxes of a Man from Galilee, How to Read the Bible in Changing Times, Four Portraits, One Jesus, and commentaries on Mark's Gospel and the Zondervan Exegetical Commentary Series and Expositor's Bible Commentary, and the Essential Bible Companion with John Walton. He's the New Testament editor of the Expanded Bible and the Teach the Text Commentary Series, and he also serves as Vice Chair of the Committee for Bible Translation for the New International Version and an Associate Editor for the NIV Study Bible. He's a member of SBR the Society of Biblical Literature and, and Super Biblical Research and the Evangelical Theological Society. He has a heart for ministry and preaches and teaches regularly at churches, conferences, and college campuses. He's a weekly teacher of a Cove Bible study at the church at Rancho Bernardo, and somehow he found time to come on here and do an interview. <laughs> and he lives in San Diego with his wonderful wife, Roxanne, a marriage and family therapist. He has three children, one in high school, one in college, and one in graduate school. So, uh, Dr. Strauss, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Great to be here, Nick. Thanks for the invitation. Thanks for coming on. It's great to get to meet you also at ETS this year. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. So, um, Dr. Strauss, just in case someone in the audience doesn't know too much about you, how did you start to be doing what you're doing? Oh, well, that's a long story. I've been doing it for over 20 years now, but um, I'll give you the brief bio. I was... Um, in college, I was a psychology major, had no plans to pursue biblical studies, though I come from a, a long line of pastors. My father was a pastor, my grandfather was a pastor, and, and a traveling conference speaker as well. But finished up my college education, psychology, wasn't sure I wanted to go on for graduate school of psychology, so t- took a few courses. Um, at 
um, in seminary to see if maybe that might be an interest of mine. I loved it um, and continued to pursue both a Master of Divinity and then a, a Master of Theology at THM. Midway through that THM, my wife and I were looking at where God wanted us, um, whether to pursue full-time ministry. We looked at missions. We took some um, fact-finding missions trip and, and some other avenues. Doors continue to close until um, a door opened for the possibility of, of a Ph.D. over at the University of Aberdeen. Um, I was very interested in the work of I. Howard Marshall. Just just went to be with his Lord, actually, just, just a few weeks back. Um, and he had done just some great work in Gospels, an area I had been working in. And I wrote to him and got accepted. He was at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, got accepted. Meanwhile, I got a part-time teaching position at a local Christian college, and that kind of cemented for me that what I wanted to do was to pursue academics, that God was leading us in that direction. So we went to Aberdeen uh, for four years, finished up my Ph.D. over there under Max Turner and Howard Marshall, and then returned here, taught briefly at Talbot Seminary, um, briefly at Christian Heritage College, and then took the Bethel position in 1994 full-time and have been there ever since. So we're on our 20, uh, 22nd or so year um, here at Bethel in, in San Diego. I teach at the San Diego campus, mm-hmm. um, Bethel, St. Paul. The main campus is in St. Paul, but they've had a San Diego campus for over 20 years now. So, mm-hmm. so that's my <laughs> brief bio to bring you up to speed. I'm curious, when you were a psychology major, is that where you happened to meet your wife and she's a marriage and family therapist? No no connection to that. I think she's a marriage and family therapist because I need so much help. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, those were really unrelated. I, um, she, she decided to pursue that after I finished my doctoral work and uh, kids were getting old, and, old enough and and we were getting fairly close to being empty nesters, and she wanted, after being a stay-at-home mom, a great stay-at-home mom for many years, she decided she really wanted to help people, and so um, finished up a master's in marriage and family therapist and is, mm-hmm. is now doing that. Okay. Well, we're talking today about your book, Jesus Behaving Badly. Now, now there was a uh, whole series that came out. I mean, David Lamb wrote years ago, God That's Behaving right. Badly. And E. Randolph Richards has told me he's working with, I think, Brandon O'Brien on Paul behaving badly, and that's going to be coming out, I think, later this year. And yeah, we're we're talking to them already about coming on the show to talk about it. So, what what is with this whole series? I mean, how did this yeah. come about? Yeah, this came out of InterVarsity, and and of course, David Lamb. I think it was his original idea. I don't know if he had the title, but I assume that he did. God behaving badly, which deals, of course, with the difficult passages in the Old Testament, um, mm-hmm. the angry God, the violent God, the genocidal God, what people look and, you know, and, and don't like about God in the Old Testament. And so mm-hmm. he responded to some of those challenges uh, with a series of paradoxes. Is, is he loving or is he angry? Um, all the way through the, the Old Testament. And the book did very well, and so InterVarsity decided maybe we should make it a series. Mm-hmm. So they came to me uh, to do Jesus behaving badly, and then to Randy and, and Brandon to do the uh, Paul behaving badly. So, mm-hmm. yeah, so that's how it, it came about. It was so this one, this title was actually offered to me. I came up with a subtitle, but the title was actually offered to me and, and does follow the model of David Lamb's book. Yeah, one of the things that I think it's important to point about Jesus, and you said as well, is that we often 
paint Jesus as this 21st or 20th century guy who, you know, he was kind of like your local Mr. Rogers. Everyone just loved Jesus, and he he was just gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And I always wanted to say when I encountered this kind of Jesus, and this is the same kind of Jesus I remember reading about in um, John Dominic Crossan's entry in the uh, Five Views on the Historical Jesus. But I was, as I was reading what Crossan was saying about the kind of teaching Jesus was giving, I, one thought kept coming to my mind. This Jesus would not get crucified. And <laughs> yeah. that, that's something absolutely essential. So, I mean, how is it that we have gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and then we have, on the other hand, history clearly showing Jesus was enough of a threat they crucified him? Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the Sunday school Jesus can be kind of a Mr. Rogers type of Jesus who yeah. just tells, pats the children on the hair, their, their heads and tells them to uh, love and obey their parents. And mm-hmm. um, and that's sort of the picture we get uh, when, in fact, obviously Jesus was an extraordinarily provocative figure if this was mm-hmm. going, if, if his ministry resulted um, in crucifixion by by his enemies. Mm-hmm. And the book begins, in fact, at the, the first chapter, um, I call Everybody Likes Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I look at that, and it's, it's Jesus is a fascinating figure historically in that regard, and even in the contemporary world. Um, people are Many people are angry at God. Uh, many people don't like Christians, but it seems uh, just about everybody likes Jesus. Um, mm-hmm. Almost every religious tradition in the world has a place for Jesus. If you look at Muslims, for example, Muslims uh, love Jesus. They consider him one of the greatest of the prophets, in fact, second only to Muhammad. They mm-hmm. view him as a great healer. Um, that, that he, you know, he shows up in the Quran a great deal. Um, New Age practitioners love Jesus. They consider to him, him to be a great guru, a mm-hmm. great mystic, in touch with his inner self. And you know, even atheists, most atheists like Jesus, consider mm-hmm. him to be a, you know, a reforming Jewish prophet who the church turned into a god, you know, and, and yeah. created all these miracle stories about him. And so everybody seems to, to love Jesus, but then they all do the same thing, and we can be guilty of this as well, and that is they create Jesus in their own image. They create a Jesus that's palatable, much like Albert Schweitzer suggested mm-hmm. 100, over 100 years ago, that, that we've all created this Jesus in our own image, and we make him into the Jesus we want him to be. And so the book is an attempt to um, what was Jesus really like? And let's look at some of the most provocative things that he did. One of my favorite podcasts to listen to actually is Unbelievable. And, yeah, I encourage everyone to listen to that one as well. Uh, they had a debate recently. I had David Robertson on, arguing from a Christian side against an atheist. And he had uh, people who were con- calling in and or writing in after a show and who were Christians and saying, you know, he was, he was awfully hard on his opponents and such sometimes. I, I just don't think that was very Christ-like. And every time I hear that, I want to say, have you ever read Matthew 23 and seen what Christ-like is like? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And we, you know, we deal with that chapter in the book because, I mean, mm-hmm. Jesus gets into some serious name-calling against against the religious leaders, mm-hmm. calling them whitewashed tombs and, and children of snakes, or, you know, Mm-hmm. Now let's uh, start talking here about the uh, revolutionary, or was he a pacifist? I mean, there are a lot of people who are pacifists today and say, you know, I, I base it on Jesus. Jesus said, 
turn the other cheek and such. But then we have Jesus going into the temple and cleaning out the the people who are sailing there. And we have him saying, hey, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. What, what's going on with Jesus? Is he a pacifist or is he a revolutionary? Sure, and, and that's our second chapter, that, that uh, paradox. Because mm-hmm. if you look at the stories of Jesus, we do see what seem to be two very contradictory, or we would say paradoxical, sides of them. Mm-hmm. As you said, he tells people to turn the other cheek. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. He says, you know, if, if someone um, makes you carry their bag, if a Roman soldier makes you carry their bag a mile, you should carry it two miles. And so mm-hmm. so this non-retaliation, overcoming evil with good, is everyone, I would say, pretty much agrees that this is the authentic Jesus, that Jesus, in fact, said these things. These are among the most undisputed statements Jesus ever made. And then on the other side, he says things like he came to bring fire to the earth in Luke chapter 12. He says he didn't come to bring peace but a sword and division and to divide families against each other. Um, As his enemies closed in at the end, he told his disciples to sell their coats and buy swords. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what's going on here? And then if we look at sort of just circumstances around his, his death, he was crucified. Well, we know crucifixion is a punishment for sedition, for revolution against the Roman authorities. The, the title is on his cross, the title, a plaque on his cross, said Jesus, King of the Jews, mm-hmm. showing that he, he made some claim uh, to be king, which would be, of course, sedition, a revolution mm-hmm. in the Roman Empire. So so what's going on? Was Jesus a revolutionary, um, or, or was he a pacifist? And uh, we seek the resolution to that uh, by looking and examining Jesus's miracles. The miracle tradition, again, one of the most undisputed parts of Jesus's ministry. Um, and then let me just give you one of those, and then we can pursue others if you'd like. But but I think it's one of the most significant, which really gives us a glimpse into Jesus's essential message and mission, um, is the question of John the Baptist. When John the Baptist has been arrested by Herod. And he's in prison, and he's he's uh, clearly struggling at this point. I think he believed Jesus would be the conquering Messiah, the traditional Jewish king of David, who would defeat the Romans and establish his kingdom. And yet Jesus is not fulfilling the role that John expected, and so John is becoming to get discouraged. He's having some doubts. So he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, um, are you the one or should we wait for, for another? Um, and Jesus' response is extremely telling. It's, it's extremely significant because um, he says, Matthew tells us that at t- that time Jesus did a number of miracles, and he said, look around, he said, the lame walk, the blind see, uh, the, the deaf are, are healed, um, the good news is preached um, to, to the poor. And he says, blessed are those who don't stumble over me. And if we look at that passage, he's not just saying... Um, look at me, I do big, powerful miracles, I must be the Messiah, or, or or look at me, I'm compassion, I must be the Messiah. He's quoting from passages, um, especially in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 61, Isaiah 35. Mm-hmm. These passages are about the, about the restoration of creation. And we see that Jesus has got a much greater vision than just defeating the Romans or establishing the kingdom of, of the kingdom of David. Um, you know, the glories of, of the, the monarchy. His purpose is to restore creation itself. He's taking, he's taking them back 
uh, not to the Davidic kingdom, but to the garden itself, to the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell and rejected humanity, and all of creation entered into a fallen state. And so we see he's got this great vision for the restoration of creation, and the war he's declaring is against Satan, against sin, and against death, much greater foes than, than Roman legions. Mm-hmm. Now, when... You were going over this and talking about John the Baptist. One thing I was thinking about is that we just got done with Christmas time here, and one of my favorite songs to hear around Christmas time is the Mary Did You Know. And it always yeah. brings up some interesting discussions about did Mary know? Because it looks like John the Baptist didn't understand what kind of Messiah Jesus was supposed to be, and heck, there were times in the Gospels that it looks like Mary and his own brother thought Jesus is crazy, Jesus is out of his mind. Is he? How could they think this if they, you know, if Mary heard from the angel and was told this child's the son of God, this is the Messiah? I mean, do you think Mary knew or what? Yeah, that's a great that's a great question. And uh, you know, my response would be that did Mary know? Well, Mary believed. Um, she had, you know, as a young woman, she had received this vision of an, of an angel declaring Jesus to be the Messiah. Did she understand all the details of how? he would fulfill his messianic role. I would say probably not. And so she had hopes and expectations for him. But when things went wrong, I'm sure she had serious doubts as well, as I think any of us would. Maybe I misunderstood the revelation. Maybe, you know, maybe he isn't the Messiah after all, or if he is, he's going to fulfill this role differently than, than we expected. So I do think she, like John, probably had doubts. When, when Jesus died, I don't think Mary, as none of the disciples, uh, were expect was expecting a resurrection. I think she felt like she uh, that she had misunderstood, or that that that, that Jesus had failed in the uh, attempt that he was trying to accomplish the, the mission he was trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. You know that that should also be a great source of encouragement to a lot of us today, especially whenever we struggle with doubt. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think so that that. Uh, these people are human just like us, and mm-hmm. biblical characters teach us from their failings as well as their successes. And when we're looking at these things that seem like paradoxes, I'm thinking, can we sometimes see it as, we can sometimes do the same sort of thing today. We can say, for instance, tell someone, look before you leap, but then we also say, he who hesitates is lost. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, they both can be true in different circumstances, and I think that's what all of these paradoxes are actually both true Mm -hmm. um, in one sense or another, when we understand the mission of Jesus. And again, when we stop making him in our own image and and listen to him on his own terms in his first century culture and context Mm -hmm. with the historical background of the Old Testament. Yeah, we had on here a couple of months ago, E. Randolph Richards and Rodney Reeves talking about their book, um, Rediscovering Jesus, and my favorite chapter, and they wrote it with David Cates, by the way, my favorite chapter in there was actually one about the American Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we have Americanized Jesus way too much. Did, did you read that one also? Or? I, I know that book. Yeah, I did read it. I actually gave them an endorsement on that. It's mm-hmm. a great book. Um, and, and yeah, we we do we have a, a model Jesus and you know without getting political we tend to paint Jesus as a particular a member of a particular party with a particular view on on issues like like gun control like the poor and so forth that maybe isn't in line with the historical Jesus 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, the next chapter you talk about, it does get into the whole Matthew 23 thing. With, was Jesus angry or was he loving? Because we can hear Jesus say, Suffer the little children, come unto me. And if anyone misleads one of them, it'd be better if a millstone was tied around him and he was thrown to the sea. And then looking at the Pharisees and saying, You brood of vipers, you make a convert, you make him twice the son of hell that you are. Yeah, a lot of serious name calling in those, mm-hmm. that, that chapter, Matthew chapter 23. He calls them fools, he calls them blind guides, he calls them hypocrites, murderers. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, Your mama was a snake, you know? Yeah, and attacking someone's heritage was such a great insult back then. Oh, yes, exactly. Mm. Yeah, yeah. He says they're whitewashed tombs with rotting corpses inside. Mm. And and yet he says to turn the other cheek and to love your enemies. So is he being contradictory when he says that? And, And what I do in that chapter is I examine the background and history to the Pharisees. I examine the background and history to the Sadducees. Um... And the Pharisees in particular had a lot in common with Jesus. I mean, they would have many of the same beliefs. They would certainly be expecting the coming of a, of a Messiah from the line mm. of David. Um, um, they would certainly believe in the resurrection in contrast to the Sadducees. Mm. And so what was the challenge with the Pharisees? Um, Jesus never accuses the Pharisees of being too meticulous in keeping the law. He accuses them of hypocrisy, of saying one thing and doing the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and then proclaims the kingdom of God to them and cause them to respond. And we know they do not respond. For the most part, they do not respond. They reject that. Well, at that point, Jesus has no recourse but to turn on them. Why? Because they're, they're, they're basically competing for the same audience. Jesus is calling Israel to respond, to repent, to accept his preaching of the kingdom of God and to accept that he's the Messiah. If the religious leaders reject that, then they have now allied themselves with Satan, with the forces of, of evil. And so Jesus turns on them, and he, he, um, he challenges them to respond, um, or if they, re- if they reject, uh, then, then destruction alone um, awaits. And, and so I think that's one thing that's going on. I think the other thing that's going on then is when they do reject him, He's going to need to provoke them to respond, and he's he's intentionally provoking his crucifixion, because mm-hmm. we we know from passages like Mark ten forty five that Jesus had in mind he he had in mind to head to Jerusalem to suffer and die, that he mm-hmm. was going to be an atoning sacrifice for sins. So part of the provocation against the religious leaders was was an intentional provocation to provoke this crisis, this climax. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we should be clear also about the religious leaders that these weren't just people going around plotting evil and such constantly. That that can't be the impression we give Sunday schools. Most of us, I mean, we would have loved to have someone like a Pharisee for our neighbor in reality. Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, the, I mean, we're really hard on the Pharisees because, of course, Jesus was hard on the Pharisees, but we have to remember that these were the most respected religious leaders and revered religious leaders. Mm-hmm. Did some people view them as, as hypocrites? Well, some of them are hypocrites, just like any religious leaders today, but they yeah. would they would engender the same kind of respect and admiration <laughs> that our local pastors would, would, would have. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so um, when Jesus challenges them, we have to say that itself is controversial. That, that itself um, would have made people take, take notice and say, what's going on here? 
mm-hmm. uh, that Jesus is challenging the very core leadership of Israel. Yeah. And before we are also to call them Pharisees, we must remember that a large portion of the New Testament was written by a Pharisee personally called by Jesus himself. <laughs> yes, exactly. And and that Pharisaic training, of course, was perfect training for the Apostle Paul, wasn't mm-hmm. it? I mean, yes, in terms of understanding the nature of the law, understanding mm-hmm. God's promises of redemption, God's promises for the coming Messiah, the nature of the coming kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah, the, the I think someone needs to write a book about the Pharisees weren't so bad after all. With that, that paradoxical perspective on the Pharisees examining the significance of their beliefs. Certainly in terms of the, in contrast to the Sadducees, Jesus had far more in common with the Pharisees than the Sadducees. The Sadducees, of course, rejected um, the resurrection, uh, rejected much of the Hebrew Bible, but accepted only the, the Torah, the Pentateuch. Mm-hmm. Uh, they uh, rejected... Um, Belief in angels and and so forth and so uh, Jesus had much more in common with the with the Pharisees than he did with the Sadducees. So, Doctor Strauss, can we expect to see soon coming from you uh, Pharisees weren't so bad after all for sale on Amazon? Or? <laughs> no, probably not. Probably not. <laughs> you know, one, of things, that. You know, one of the things I think this gets to us is we live in the culture today that has very idolized love. As I want to say, everything is good if it's done in love, and you know you you shouldn't hate anything. And I I tell people like if you don't hate anything, you don't really love anything either, because if someone for instance goes after my missus who I love, I, I am definitely going to respond with a lot of anger, and I might not hate them, but I will sure hate what they did at that point. And the reason is because I have an intense love, and Jesus had the same kind of love. He had such a great love for the kingdom of God that he only responded with anger to those who were blocking the progress of the kingdom of God. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, we have a, a chapter in the book called Hellfire, Pre- Hellfire Preacher or Gentle Shepherd, mm-hmm. where, we, where we look at that. Um, is God, or is, is Jesus hate, hating people, or is he loving people? We, mm-hmm. You know, he obviously has a great focus on love, and, and God's fundamental attribute is love. But, mm-hmm. but parallel to the attribute of love is, of course, the attribute of justice. And without justice, mm-hmm. there can be no, no love, because as we know, there is, there is great evil in this world. There, there, there's you know, a history of genocide, of, of man killing man, of, of, of deep, deep hatred. Um, the the belief in hell, and we can talk about hell, but Jesus certainly talked about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. Yeah. Sometimes we, we think of the, the, the Old Testament God as the angry fire and brimstone God, or the Apostle Paul as the angry Apostle, but in fact, Jesus spoke more about hell than anyone anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in one chapter, we, we deal with that. Was he a hellfire mm-hmm. preacher? And I, I think the doctrine of hell, fundamentally, is simply the doctrine of divine justice. Mm-hmm. That there is a God who is not only loving but is absolutely just, and will wrong every right. And for all those who are who are oppressed, who are um, murdered, who are treated unjustly, there will be ultimate justice. If if there is no hell, uh, then there is no justice in this world. If there is no justice, there is no sovereign God in the world. We can mm-hmm. debate about the nature of hell and the extent of hell and the, puni- the nature of the punishment and so forth. But I think the doctrine itself is simply the doctrine of, of divine justice, the fact that there is a God who is not 
only loving but also fully just. You've got a chapter also, the next one, about Jesus if he was an environmentalist. Well, now, and this one could be a surprise to some people, I mean, because when you look at the title, you think, hmm, I don't think Jesus ever said anything about climate change or problems <laughs> of pollution or anything like that. But when you look at it in the chapter, it is actually some of the most common objections you can find, especially if you're on the Internet. In fact, one of these comes from Bertrand Russell, I believe, where even he said something about it, he just doesn't trust the character of Jesus in some cases because he drowned all those poor innocent pigs and you know in in our world today you know people just say all that bacon that was lost right there because of what jesus did i mean how how could this be justifiable what what did those pigs ever do to jesus yeah that's uh there's that chapter really deals with two main episodes Mm -hmm. and one of them is the episode of pigs and I'll just briefly respond to that one. Then maybe we can talk about the fig tree, which is the other one that Bertrand Russell did not like. That he yeah. felt like, you know, Jesus just had a temper tantrum and cursed his fig tree. But I think one thing we have to remember with reference to the episode of the pigs is, is Jesus didn't kill the pigs. Um, the the demons killed the pigs. And what, when we look around in the world, we see evil doing great destruction. And I think that episode more than anything else reminds us. Um, that there is real, authentic evil in this world, and that evil is destructive. Um, and Jesus came to bring restoration. When the townspeople come out after he has cast out the demon and the, the pigs have all died, uh, they see two scenes, really. They see this scene of horrible um, destruction in, in the sea with the pigs, and then they see this man who has been enslaved by demons for, for so long, sitting in his right mind. And, and what are they going to do? How, which, which are they going to focus on? Well, they focus on the destruction, and so they ask Jesus to leave. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus is the one who has brought restoration. Jesus is the one who has brought healing. Uh, Satan and his, his henchmen is the, are, are the ones who have brought dis- destruction. And so really, that, that should be a passage more about hope um, than about destruction or about, about you know, why, why did Jesus possibly allow this this environmental disaster or cruelty to, to pigs. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, in fact, is bringing restoration to humanity and ultimately restoration to all of, all of creation. On a side note with this passage, what would you say to those people who question the authenticity of a passage just by saying, for instance, well, the, the, the demon was named Legion, and so obviously this is a reference to the expulsion of the Roman army instead. And so it, it's not meant to tell us a true story. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, and and that's a view held by many, and and some would even say it could be a both end. It could be a, actually a historical story, but there's symbolic significance. Right. Jesus did lots of things that were were symbolic, and and for those who interpret um, some of these episodes and, and Jesus's ministry itself as a more politically focused ministry, um, mm-hmm. I, I think would would come to that conclusion. Um, I, I much more understand Jesus in the in the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament. And Isaiah, I think his teaching, his ministry is full of themes from Isaiah. I really think that Jesus had his eyes not primarily on the Roman legions, um, but primarily on Satan's sin and death, and that really it is about the restoration of creation, not about um, so much about the political entities of his day. Or else he wouldn't have said things like, you know, if if your enemy has you carry it, 
their bags for a mile go for two miles. Yeah. He wouldn't have said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. If he was truly trying to provoke um, a, a political revolution or a social revolution, even in that sense, against the, the Roman authorities, I think he would have gone about it differently. He, he wouldn't have spoken about so much about respect for government and, and so forth. I think he had a much greater plan in view. I think it was Richard Horsley. I think. Yeah. Oh, go on. I think it was SFG Brandon who years ago came up with a theory that Jesus was a zealot, and he was a scholar who did that. And from a more non-scholarly perspective, Reza Aslan recently wrote that book Zealot. But the zealot idea of Jesus never really has caught on, has it? No, because there's so much evidence against it. And I actually raised, uh, note those two um, authors in the chapter on revolutionary pacifists. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Reza Aslan rightly cites um, a number of passages that show the political and revolutionary climate of first century um, Palestine, of first century Israel. But he really doesn't seriously engage the sayings and the actions of Jesus. And anyone who does, even you know those of the Jesus Seminar and other far-left groups, don't come out with a Jesus who is a political revolutionary. It's really hard to find that case. Mm-hmm. Uh, all, all Aslan does is he basically says, this is the world in which Jesus lived, therefore this must have been Jesus, without really looking at what we know to be Jesus and, mm-hmm. and what we know that he certainly said, uh, that the strongest historical evidence for what he said. So yeah. I, I don't. I think that's the reason it's never caught on well. Yeah, I mean, when we look at passages like I came to bring, not a peace, not peace, but division. I came to bring a sword and such. Where I look at it and saying that Jesus is speaking in a more metaphorical sense because the kingdom of God is going to be divisive either way. Absolutely, and we see that all the time, don't we? I mean, yeah. it does divide families. It does mm-hmm. create division mm-hmm. in our country, but especially in in places. Um, um, where, where to, for, for a person to turn to Christ means a, means a repudiation in many ways of their family and their culture and, mm-hmm. and their entire world. And it, it, you know, people are ostracized, rejected. They're even even killed mm-hmm. um, for that. You can see what that Jesus is speaking the truth when he says he he came to bring division. He came to bring a sword. That families will be divided. That he's establishing new spiritual relationships. When we get back to the pig story, though, something else that's worth pointing out is that everything in the story, in some ways, is kind of wrong, because this was a Gentile territory. You had tombs being discussed with people that had been in the tombs being out, and demons out there, and then pigs. Everything about it is just a this is disgusting. Yep. Yep. Exactly. From a Jewish perspective, just like, mm-hmm. just as you said, the, the tombs are unclean. Uh, the demons are un- unclean, the pigs are unclean. And what happens, again, Jesus brings restoration and healing to a, p- a thoroughly defiled context and situation. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it's not that animals don't matter that, or that you want to be cruel to animals, but ultimately um, uh, human beings are created in the image of God. They have certainly greater value uh, than animals. And um, this is about the restoration of a human being and the opportunity of the restoration of creation itself and pointing forward to the restoration mm. of creation itself. <laughs> now, let's go to the story of the fig tree. Because this is one that also Father Bertrand from He said that you have Jesus walking along and he says, oh, I think I'm hungry. I'll go uh, 
pick a fig from a tree and then taking it going to take it out and don't behold there aren't any figs on it but I mean you could understand being angry in some cases until you realize this wasn't even the season for figs so it's not surprising the tree doesn't have any figs and yet Jesus curses the tree and it dies I mean yeah. why would someone curse an innocent tree like that yeah yeah and I think I think Bertrand Russell made a big comment about this about uh, his petty petty um, comment and and uh, even um, I think um, C.H. Dodd uh, rejected this account as historical because he just felt like it was inappropriate um, for for Jesus this you know this wise teacher to to act this way. Um, but I think um, when we look again, if when we take a step back and look more closely at the, the broader context of this passage, we see that there's a lot more going on here than it first meets the eye. Um, Mark's gospel, I think, gives us the clearest indication of this because Mark often has these what we call sandwich structures or intercalations where he starts an episode and then he interrupts that episode. The the episode or story is interrupted by another story and then he eventually returns to the first story. He does this about six or seven times in his gospel. And each time the two stories... Sorry? It's sometimes called sandwiching, isn't it? Yes, sandwiching, yeah, yeah, interpolation or sandwiching. And each time the two episodes explain each other. And this is one of his most famous ones. Jesus, as you said, it's early morning, he's hungry, he comes to the tree, there's no fig, so he curses the tree. Um, and we go, what? Why would he curse you know, curse the poor tree? Especially, as you, as you noted, that Mark says it's not the feast season for fig. And he goes into Jerusalem and he clears the temple. And then after the clearing of the temple, the next day, the tree is discovered withered. So the story of the tree is interrupted by the temple cleansing. And suddenly we say, aha, we, we realize that, that this is a symbolic action, a prophetic symbolic action, something we see in the Old Testament quite a lot. We see symbolic actions by the prophets, that God tells them to do these actions as a symbol of what he's going to accomplish. Jeremiah is once told to, to smash a pot in front of the priests mm. to symbolize coming destruction of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Well, this is not so different mm-hmm. from that. Israel portrayed as a fig tree sometimes in the Old Testament or portrayed as an unfruitful plant because they're not fulfilling their role that God has called them to. And so I think it's clear that the fig tree is a symbol of unfruitful Israel, especially the unfruitful leadership of Israel. Mm-hmm. And that, that um, cursing of the fig tree is a pronouncement of judgment against Israel. So then Jesus goes into the temple, and he clears the temple, which is not just a cleansing of the temple, but I believe it's a symbolic destruction of the temple. Jesus is, again, pronouncing judgment against the temple, um, be- representing Israel and especially Israel's leadership, mm-hmm. because they're not bearing fruit. Um, and, and so the two episodes mutually interpret one another and symbolize Israel's religious leaders who are rejecting Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom. If you if you keep reading in Mark's gospel, then it becomes even even more clear that that's what's happening. That the religious leaders first challenge Jesus, um, his authority, and Jesus responds um, with a question. He says, "The authority of John the Baptist was it from God or was it merely human?" And they refuse to answer because they know if they acknowledge that John's message was from God, then John they would have to proclaim Jesus' message is from God. 
Mm-hmm. And then the very mm-hmm. next episode, Jesus tells the parable of the wicked tenant farmer. Mm-hmm. And this picks up the themes that we've been seeing in the cursing of the fig tree, the, the scene that we've been seeing with the clearing of the temple as well. Um, he picks up the parable of the vineyard in Isaiah, um, in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, where God is going to judge Israel symbolized as a vineyard because they don't bear good fruit. Jesus takes that story from Isaiah and he reworks it. Only this time there are tenant farmers representing the religious leaders who refuse to give the owner of the tenant the crops that, that he deserves. Mm-hmm. And he sends, he sends servants representing the Old Testament prophets who are rejected one by one. He eventually sends his own son who the tenant farmers reject and kill. And so we see now that the, the parable of the tenant farmers, it's in Mark chapter 12, is a symbolic allegory of the ministry of Jesus. That the, God sent the prophets with the message, God sent his son, they rejected the son. Um, but then Jesus quotes from Psalm 118 at the end of that parable, that the, the stone the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone of the whole building. That is a temple image. It's an image of building the temple where workers would look at one stone and not use that stone, would reject that stone. But then that stone, according to Psalm 118, becomes the foundation stone or the cornerstone for a whole new temple. And suddenly Jesus' ministry becomes clear. The temple will be destroyed. The religious leaders will be destroyed. And in place of that, God is going to build a new temple with Jesus himself as the foundation stone. And the new temple, of course, is the body of Christ, and the new temple is the church. And so those episodes, I think that's the most powerful section in Mark's gospel. Those episodes, what looks like a, you know, a early morning temper tantrum, maybe a, a low blood sugar temper tantrum, becomes a profound, prophetic, symbolic act, um, illustrating what's happening in Jesus' ministry, that, that Israel's rejection of the gospel the judgment that is coming, and then the restoration that's going to take place, the rebuilding of the temple, the new temple, which is the people of God and the body of Christ. So I, I think it's um, that that um, one episode of so-called Jesus behaving badly actually is profoundly significant with reference to his mission, with reference to his purpose. Well, I do have to say that when uh, we were over at, in Atlanta for Thanksgiving and we were visiting my in-laws Mike and Debbie Lacona and you know, I got to meet you with Mike at ETS I remember that and uh-huh. and when we were there and just staying at their house uh, Mike did offer me some figs once and he said you know if once you start having figs regularly you do understand why Jesus cursed the fig tree <laughs> so let's uh, go ahead to the idea one that we're resonate with many Christians today who struggle with Syria, was Jesus grace-filled or was he a legalist? Because many times we hear about Jesus describing grace, like the story of a prodigal son and such. But then you look at the Sermon on the Mount and that is extremely difficult to follow. And, and for instance, when he says, if you look at a woman with lust, then it's then pluck out your own eye and throw it away. And, you know, if we took that literally, every man on the planet would be blind. <laughs> yeah, he says, Jesus says some amazingly shocking and severe things. Um, mm-hmm. it, 
If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, um, pull it out. He says, be perfect as my Father in heaven is, is, is perfect. Yeah. Uh, and yet, and then on the other side of that, the paradox is we see parables, um, for example, that are incredibly graceful. The parable of the prodigal son, for example, a, a son who basically sins grievously, really, especially in that cultural context, against mm. his family and especially against his father. Um, and when he returns, um, his father offers him complete forgiveness without having to earn his way back into the family. So parable of the prodigal son, one of the greatest statements on grace um, ever written. Um, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, where the Pharisee, go, they both go into the temple to pray, and uh, simply by repenting, simply by confessing his sins, the tax collector is forgiven, and the Pharisee, who's prideful and arrogant about his good works, is not forgiven. Well, that's a story all about grace. So Jesus seems to demand perfection on the one hand, and then yet say grace is a free gift of salvation on the other. And so where do we resolve that paradox? Well, I, I think the answer comes in the nature of the new creation, that salvation is a gift, that, that human beings, as, as we have to move into Paul's theology to get this most clearly stated, but that human beings are utterly sinful, unable to save themselves. Um, but when we rejected God, when we turned from him, he sent the free gift of his son. Jesus comes offering the free gift of salvation, the free gift of grace. Now, when we accept that grace, we an internal transformation. God works an internal transformation through the Holy Spirit that changes us into a new creation that brings us to be part of the new creation. And in that new creation, we have we are set to a higher standard. Because why? Because we have God himself living in us. We have the Holy Spirit. So I think the new covenant is the age of the Spirit. The new covenant is the age of grace. The new covenant is the age of empowerment to accomplish God's purpose on earth. So mm -hmm. Jesus came to fulfill the law, to bring it to its ultimate completion, which is to establish the new covenant when the law would be written on our hearts. And when the Spirit would indwell people and, and bring a, produce a transforming presence in their lives. So I think that's, in summary form at least, how we resolve this tension between uh, legalist and grace-filled. Mm -hmm. well, how about if we look at a story about such as a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, you know, if you want eternal life, keep the commandments. And, you know, are we supposed to become commandment keepers in that sense? Are we supposed to go back to the Old Testament law? Because, you know, a lot of our opponents would say, hey, you just pick and choose what you want from the Old Testament. You you want to condemn about homosexuality, but you have no problem with shellfish. Right, yeah. Well, I think we, we should keep the commandments, but we have to realize who the commandments were given to and what, what commandments we keep. We keep all of God's commandments that were given to, to humanity, um, but the Old Testament law was given to Israel and was, was given to Israel within their specific historical and cultural context. And so when Jesus says keep the commandments, he is telling, he, that's exactly what he means, uh, keep the commandments. Um, but that's, I think that story also teaches us a great deal about grace. When we, when we read it all the way through, the story of the rich young ruler, um, and I think it starts at the very beginning, a puzzling, the puzzling statement that Jesus makes. The man refers to him as good teacher, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. And, of course, that's a statement that is a controversial statement, because is Jesus claiming not to be God? 
Well, no, he's not claiming not to be God. He's not even referring, um, he's not even addressing that question. This, this man does not think Jesus is God. He thinks he's a good, a good teacher. And so Jesus is challenging the nature of goodness. Um, what does it mean to be good? Only God is truly good. Human beings are not good. In other words, human beings cannot earn their salvation, no matter how hard they work. And so you get the, to the end, then, when the, uh, the rich man says, I've kept the commandments, and Jesus says, one thing you lack, sell all you have, give to the poor, and follow me. And the man can't do it. He can't give, give it up. And the disciples are shocked, because they think this man is the perfect candidate to enter the kingdom of God. He's rich, so he must be blessed by God because that's what most Jews of the day would have expected. Um, and he's been keeping the commandments. And then Jesus makes a shocking response. He says, how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And as you know, he meant that he meant that literally. Some people try to create a, a gate in Jerusalem called the camel's eye gate that, that is just possible to squeak through if you, if you unload the camel. We know that gate never existed. Jesus is using hyperbole to make a point. Mm-hmm. It is impossible under our own power. It's uh, impossible to enter the kingdom, kingdom of God. We have to receive it by grace. So I think that episode is not about legalism, ultimately. It's about grace. It's about the free gift of grace that we must receive, um, because Jesus then, you know, the... the, the um, disciples say, who then can be saved? And what does Jesus say? He says, with mankind it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And there's the grace right there. With God all things are possible. Only God can accomplish our salvation. He's done it through Jesus Christ. We receive it as a gift, gift of grace. Bruce Molina also has, I think, an interesting look in his book on the New Testament world of the story of Rich Young Ruler when he comes to Jesus as good teacher. Because he says, you know, if you lived in that world, if someone gave you a compliment, and you just accept a compliment, then you were kind of in a trapped relationship at that point because you would be in that person's debt. And what he argues is Jesus is saying, okay, you want to call me good? Well, here's who is good. It's God. Are you ready for that kind of commitment? Total commitment to God. Yeah, that's possible. I'm not sure. I'm not sure about that interpretation. But let's move on because the next one is the uh, hellfire or a gentle shepherd because you know we see here so often a loving God wouldn't send anyone to hell but apparently a loving Jesus didn't mind talking about hell quite a bit right yes and and again I think this is the doctrine of hell is about the doctrine of divine justice ultimately that's that's fundamentally what it's what it's about is is it, God is a righteous and just God and that means to act justly means to punish evil, means to deal with evil. If he, if he just looked the other way, if he said, well, boys will be boys, and, and, and offered you know, just forgiveness with, with no cost, then um, he would not be God because he would not be just. And so when Jesus talks about how I think he's talking about the doctrine of divine justice, mm-hmm. I do think it's legitimate um, for evangelical Christians to discuss the nature of hell. Um, and that's what we do in, in, that, in that chapter, because... Um, you know, what what many Christians struggle with is not the concept of hell or the concept of divine justice. It's the concept of eternal conscious punishment, punishment that would go on and on for, for eternity. And, and the challenge that many people have made to that is that how can temporal sins, how can limited numbers of sins 
limited amount of evil result in eternal, eternal punishment? And I think that's a difficult and, and challenging question. And in that chapter, we try to deal with that and raise some of the other possibilities, um, whether whether it's um, a, 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 a not eternal but a temporary hell that results in destruction, as John Scott and others have believed, um, or whether there is ultimate reconciliation after a period of judgment. Um, those are some of the different views that people have hold, and we try to deal fairly with those various different views. Mm-hmm. For someone looking for a more discussion on that topic, by the way, I'd recommend going back to earlier this year since I was last year. I did interview Jerry Walsh in his book, Heaven, Hell, and Purgatory, and we did discuss this kind of question. Simon. Excellent. You know, one of the things that I always think about with the doctrine of hell is that hell is always a tragedy, however you look at it. I remember when we were caught in the war against Saddam Hussein, and Someone messaged me when I was on Power Talk one day and said, Hey, did you hear the news? We've we found and we killed Saddam Hussein's sons. Isn't this wonderful? And I said, You know what? It's wonderful that they're not going to be bringing about evil on this earth ever again. That's great. But it's sad whenever people who are not Christians die because they spend eternity then apart from God. And that, that is something that should always make us sad, no matter what our view on hell is, except for perhaps the universalists who somehow think that everyone's going to get there anyway. Right, absolutely. And I think that's exactly right. It, 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 is, it, is, a, it is a great tragedy. We need to recognize that. And we, need, we, we mustn't gloat over this. I mean, this is, uh, yeah. if people reject God, they will suffer the consequences. But that's a tragedy, not something to be celebrated. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I had someone email me recently asking about a D.M. Murdoch, also known as Akaria S., who's been one of the most prolific internet writers who hosts the Jesus mythicism and pagan parallel copycat thesis and such. And how she passed away on Christmas from breast cancer, and I said, "What do you think?" And I said, "You know, I agree with you that it's good that the pseudo scholarship isn't going to be out there, but..." It's just really sad for me because based on my views of end times and such to think that someone who spent their life arguing against Christianity has died. Certainly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Death is always a tragedy, absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. And when it comes to the idea also about an eternal uh, condemnation for things, I, I've told my wife this recently when we talk about keeping the commandments and such and things that we don't do right. I said, um, here's what I've decided. Jesus says the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the next one is love your neighbor as yourself. And we fail miserably at those two every single day. And yet he shows grace. I think he's going to show grace for us on the lesser commandments. But when it comes to the nature of hell being eternal. I mean, if you spend your whole life living in rebellion against God and treating him like he doesn't matter, that's that's not a minor thing. That's really an eternal sin. Absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, let's uh, briefly start in the next chapter of anti-family or family-friendly. Dan Barker, another one in the Mephesis crowd, 
likes to point out, and Hector Avalos has joined him in this one, about Jesus having a commandment that you should hate your father <laughs> and your mother. And I have seen so many internet atheists and such post this verse saying, see, Jesus is telling you to hate your parents. What kind of person tells you to hate your parents? And I, I'm just mind-blown and people can't even recognize the metaphorical language, but what do you <laughs> think of it? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt that that's hyperbole. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, Jesus also says take the beam out of your own eye before so you can, you know, see clearly to take the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. Um, there's no way there's really a beam. You can never get a beam into your own eye. Jesus yeah. loves this hyperbole or mm -hmm. the camel going through the eye of the needle. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a style of teaching, and it gets their attention. There's no mm -hmm. doubt that it gets their attention, and that's the point. And it's interesting because Matthew has the same saying, but in Matthew's saying, if, if anyone comes after me and, and loves father, mother, etc., more than me, and that's really what Jesus means. But Luke records the version, I think, probably the version Jesus actually said about, or maybe he said them both, I don't know. But um, Jesus records the hyperbolic version that gets people people's attention. Um, mm -hmm. I, in, in the book, I, when I'm dealing with this, this topic, I, I, I look at the parable of the Pearl of Great Price. Yes, that's um, a very human to look, by the way. <laughs> um, be, be, you know, here's a guy who goes out and he finds a pearl and he sells everything he has to buy this pearl. Well, that's just crazy. That's just stupid, you know. Um, and then in the book, I, I, you know, bring it into modern day life. Um, I sell my house. I sell my cars. I sell my kids. You know, I, I, I'm willing to give up absolutely everything for this pearl. And, I, and you say, well, that's, that's, that's absurdity. Well, what is the kingdom of God worth? What is the restoration of creation worth? What is eternal salvation worth? Well, it's worth absolutely everything. And so the, the cost of discipleship is, is to absolutely give up everything. So I think that's one thing that's going on. Uh, the other thing that's going on when Jesus talks about family is the fact that the kingdom of God establishes new family relationships. It's like the episode when um, Jesus' mother and um, brothers come. It's actually another one of these intercalations or sandwich structures in, in Mark's gospel. They, they come to see Jesus. Um, and Jesus is in the house with his disciples, and someone says, your mother and, and brothers and sisters are outside looking for you. They're, they're coming to take you home. And Jesus says, which would be a great insult in that cultural context, he says, who are my mother and brothers and sisters? And he looks at his disciples and he says, it's, here they are, right? It's those who do the will of God yeah. who are my brother and sisters and mother. And Jesus is clearly establishing new relationships something we need to realize that that our spiritual relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ are of far greater significance and should be far greater intimacy than than our our physical family mm -hmm. our brothers and sisters in Syria our brothers and sisters in Christ in Syria are our brothers and sisters more than our unbelieving neighbors across the street that we share everything culturally with but but ultimately nothing spiritually with so i um I think Jesus is calling us back to reality when he talks about who our true family members are, who our brothers and sisters are. And it should have a lot to tell us in America about where our loyalties rot, um, where our loyalties are. Um, we, we tend to think of ourselves first as Americans. Well, we're first as, as world Christians. Um, and so I think that's, that needs to be a, a primary focus um, mm -hmm. 
when we, when we talk about who, who family is, and we, when we look at Jesus' attitudes uh, towards physical versus spiritual families. Well, I'd like to remind everyone, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast right now. i got Dr. Mark Strauss on. We're talking about his book, Jesus Behaving Badly. But if you're here next week, I'm going to be interviewing J. Steve Miller. He's going to be discussing a topic I don't think we've discussed on the show yet, but it's when I'm interested in near-death experiences. What are we to make of near-death experiences? Can we give us evidence of the afterlife, of heaven, something of that sort? We'll be talking with him. He's got a book on it. And he'll be on to talk about near-death experiences. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, be here next week. And even if you're not interested in it, please be here next week because it's really great to have you listening to the show. But if you're uh, saying about the uh, story of the beautiful pearl, I'm going to read it from your book because, honestly, this thing was so hysterical. And, and my wife heard me laughing and said, what is, what's so funny? I said, okay, let me read this to you. <laughs> so said, Suppose on our anniversary, I presented my wife with a beautiful pearl necklace. She responds, it's beautiful, but can we afford it? Well, I say, I had to sell the house to buy it. What? She says. The house? What were you thinking? No problem. We can live on the street. Oh, and I had to sell our cars and empty out our bank accounts, and I cashed out retirement. What? She says. Then she looks around. Wait a minute. Where are the kids? <laughs> yeah, trying to trying to bring up to date the, the Pearl of Great Price parable for, for our yeah. culture. Yeah. Yeah. When you talk about our neighbors in Syria and things of that sort, I'm thinking about us. Matthew, also, I read uh, Nabil Qureshi's book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Mm. And uh, I don't know if you read it or not, but when he uh, comes to Christ in the book, the biggest challenge he has that he's going to face is talking to his family about what he's done. He even says, God, I wish I, when I had converted... You would have just killed me right then and there. So I'd be in your presence and my family would never have to have known. Yeah, and I think that's, you know, that's a, a great illustration of what mm-hmm. Jesus says when he says, you know, unless you hate family, brothers and sisters. Um, in, in America, if we, if someone converts to another religion, they might be a little bit looked down upon by their family, even rejected even, but but they're they're probably not going to be killed or not not going to be completely ostracized or treated as though they were they were dead, um, and that but that's what what happens to our brothers and sisters around around the world in in many cases that there's mm-hmm. there's complete rejection there's complete repudiation, and so in when you look at that context the idea of of true spiritual family who are my brothers and sisters suddenly takes on a whole new and profound significance. And when you were talking about this being a hyperbole also. I think this could bring us another side of Jesus as well, because it's my understanding that in Jesus' day, in Jewish humor, hyperbole was where it was at. If you want to make a joke, you did hyperbole. Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's a powerful rhetorical device. It, it really gets your attention. Mm-hmm. Um, even even when, and I, without getting too controversial, even when Jesus says something like to the Pharisees, unless, if you divorce your wife and remarry another, you've committed adultery. Well, I do. I do believe he means that. But but certainly, some people say so. You, you know, you can never remarry because every time you would ever have sexual relations with a, a second wife, it's adultery. Adultery. Well, I don't. I don't think that's that Jesus is saying this is perpetual adultery forever. I think he's using hyperbole to get their attention. Mm-hmm. They were just casually divorcing their wives and remarrying as though it was no big deal. Jesus, do you realize how significant this, significant this is? 
this is a, a, a covenant, a lifelong covenant made before God, and you are just dismissing this covenant and, and moving on. So I think in many cases we, we sometimes don't see the hyperbole um, that is that is there that is meant to make a profound and powerful teaching point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Robert Gagnon, in fact, he's one who I just say when it comes to this kind of thing. Robert Gagnon is a beast on these matters because you do not want to go up against him, especially if yeah, you're, I know. <laughs> if you're trying to argue for homosexuality, you do not want to go against Robert Gagnon, and. Uh, when he's talked about this passage, he's said, you know, the Pharisees had their view. Well, let's compare it to the Essenes. Here's how tough the Essenes were. The Essenes thought the Pharisees were wimps when it came to the law. So they have this more extreme view on marriage than the Pharisees do. Jesus comes and he goes even beyond the Essenes. <laughs> Yeah, no, he does, exactly. And I think, but I do think that, in part at least, it's meant to be hyperbolic. It's meant to do something he constantly does, which is shock shock the Pharisees and religious leaders out of their complacency. And whenever I do talk to any men today who are struggling in their marriage and such, and I'll I'll try and just talk to them one-on-one some, and try to offer me help and some sort of say, well, you don't know what my wife's doing. I say, okay, that's nice. I'm not talking to her. I'm talking to you. And the first question right. I always ask every time is, did you make a covenant? And you say, yeah, but okay, you made a covenant. Keep it. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, the next chapter that we're looking at here in the book is, was Jesus a racist? Or was he an inclusivist? You know, you know some of them think, well, in the Bible, do we have an idea of Jesus being a racist? But then we <laughs> come to this story of a Syrophoenician woman coming to Jesus, begging for her daughter to be healed of a demon, and saying, please, they're my daughter. I mean, this is one of the most innocent children you could have. And Jesus just looks up the race and says, yeah, I'm sorry, but the dog don't get fed before the children do. I mean, what is going on with Jesus? Why is Jesus being so mean to this this woman? Yeah, yeah. I, I think, and and you're right, I think, with your initial statement that, you know, we don't, we certainly, and most people don't think of Jesus at all as being racist. And, and there are lots of examples in the Gospels, and we look at them in the chapter, where Jesus has clearly got a much greater or inclusive vision for the kingdom of God, and the parable of the, the Good Samaritan, for example, mm-hmm. is a great example of that. I and mean, we can talk about that as well. But this is a great story. This is actually, yeah. if I had to choose one story that was maybe my favorite story of Jesus, apart from the resurrection, uh, this this might just be it, because mm-hmm. it tells us so much about Jesus in his culture, in his context, and so much about his mission. Um, but he's in a Gentile area. He's up by Tyre and Sidon, and this woman comes to him, and her, her daughter is demon-possessed, and she begs him uh, to heal her daughter. And, you know, we know Jesus is so compassionate, we expect him just to heal her. And we are shocked, in many ways, to read what he says. He says, um, he says it's not right to take the bread of the children and give it to the dogs. And he uses that derogatory term, dogs, that was used uh, of Gentiles. And I think what we need to realize is Jesus is intentionally 
kind of provoking her faith, but also intentionally provoking his disciples, because they this is exactly what their perspective would be. Israel believed that God's blessings was were for them, um, and and she responds. She comes right back at it and says, "Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs." And it's a it's a great answer because she she acknowledges she concedes basically she acknowledges that that the children get the bread first, that God's promises came to Israel, that the Messiah was to come through Israel, that the blessings were to come through Israel. But then she says, but the, but the dogs get it uh, as, as well. Um, and she, she's, she's no, she knows her Old Testament even better than the disciples, because she recognizes that God's blessings are ultimately were ultimately intended um, for the Gentiles as well. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons I love this passage so much is because this is the only time the only time in the Gospels where Jesus, we could say, loses a debate. Yep. Now, that sounds funny to say that. <laughs> but in every other case, when he's uh, arguing with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, etc., um, he always wins. He always defeats them. He always humiliates them, in fact. In this case, he actually concedes defeat. He, concedes, he, he basically says, oh, you're right. Actually, the dogs do get to eat the crumbs. And for such a reply, you may go, the demon has left your daughter, and he heals, he heals. So the only time Jesus loses a debate is against a woman, which in that cultural context was a, a very low social status, and against a Gentile, a despised Gentile. Mm-hmm. And he concedes that God's promises are, in fact, for ultimately for the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Now, some people who interpret the story uh, think that Jesus basically changed his mind, that he, he was, wasn't going to heal the daughter um, that he didn't believe that God's blessings are for the Gentiles, but that this woman convinced him otherwise, and he changed his perspective. Some have even said this entirely changed his ministry. Um, but I don't think that's what's going on. I think Jesus is doing what he so often does. He's provoking faith. He's playing with her. He knows yeah. he wants her to demand it. He wants her to push back, pass through the obstacle uh, to to gain salvation. And I, that's so common, isn't it, in the Gospels, where where there's an obstacle placed in some sense, and that to overcome that obstacle is a statement of faith. Like when the four friends of the paralyzed man tear up the roof, there's an obstacle. You know, that the, the house is packed full and nobody can get to Jesus, so they can't get their friend to Jesus. That's a huge obstacle. So what do they do? They tear up the roof and they drop their friend through. Um, or blind Bartimaeus, who cries out for Jesus to heal him, and the crowd says, shut up, he's busy, don't be quiet. And Bartimaeus just cries out all the more. He pushes through that obstacle um, for the for the salvation. So I think this is a great example of, of that as well. He's provoking Jesus, provoking her faith, wanting to see more faith, and she demonstrates mm-hmm. that faith. God's promises are even for the Gentiles. I think some people have also said maybe Jesus is in fact showing not the nature of a woman, but the nature of a disciple, because the way he responds at first. That's the very way the disciples would respond. They would have said, Gentile, dog, and that would have been it. And Jesus is exposing the disciples as well. I, I think that's exactly right. I think he's exposing them, um, and he's exposing the Jewish stereotype with reference to the Gentiles. Mm-hmm. I think that's exactly right, yep. Now, when we come to the parable of a good Samaritan, it really is a shocking parable today. I mean, as I was sitting here trying to think of closest parallel we could have today in our culture, we might say, the parable of a good ISIS terrorist. Yeah, for instance. <laughs> exactly. Yep. I couldn't think of a better example. I think that's exactly right. 
mm-hmm. something that is just revolting to us and unthinkable to us. Yep. And and I found it interesting that when Jesus uh, finishes the story and he looks at the lawyer and says, "Which one of these was a the neighbor?" The lawyer says. For one who showed mercy, he can't even bring himself to say, "For Samaritan," right? The who was going to right. I mean, seeing as you said Samaritan, you were supposed to spit on the ground. He, he just has to say, "You can't picture him begrudgingly." Like, uh, the, the one who showed mercy, God, saying it under his breath, yeah, because it's exactly. so irritating. Yep, and it's it's and then it's ironic, then, isn't it, that we call that the parable of the good Samaritan because mm-hmm. that would have been just unthinkable. That title would have been unthinkable mm-hmm. in a Jewish context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, when you're looking at the next section here, it's the section on if Jesus is a sexist or if he's an egalitarian. Now, some people look at the Paul, for instance, and say, well, Paul didn't really like women a lot. I mean, you look at the passages and these will be ones that <clears throat> we'll discuss more with Eve Randolph Richards and Brown Brown, but just use examples here. But like, yeah, tell the women to be quiet in the churches and you know, the women are supposed to submit to their husbands and things of that sort and say, well, yeah, okay. We don't really like that, but Jesus, Jesus is different. And Jesus went around uplifting women and traveling with his 12 disciples. You, anyway, all of those disciples were men. Why on earth did Jesus not have any females in his group? Isn't Jesus being sexist here? Yeah, and and I think that's what you've just said is a great a great summary. If if we look at Jesus, most people would say Jesus is, is was very liberating for women. The, the mere idea of having women disciples like Mary Magdalene and and, and others. Um, would be shocking in that cultural context. So I don't think, I think everyone acknowledges there's a certain amount of liberation, uh, that, that Jesus is certainly exalting women in a cultural context where they tended to have quite a low social status. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then in, in the book we, so, so this is the chapter that, that maybe is, is difficult to write in that regard because Jesus seems to be such, you know, so pod- positive and, and modern in that perspective. But as you said, he did venture, mm-hmm. well, male disciples? Why did he choose 12 men um, if, in fact, um, he believed in the equality of women? And, um, it, of course, in our in our evangelical context, that's a challenging question, because there's still a, a continuing and a raging debate over the role of women, uh, men and women, in the church and the home. And so, in the chapter, I point out both perspectives, what would be an egalitarian perspective and what would be a complementarian perspective on this. And the egalitarian perspective is basically Jesus is doing it um, to refl- as a reflection of his cultural context. It would have been so scandalous for him to have women in his inner circle of disciples um, that it would, have, it would have rendered his ministry ineffective in, in other ways. Um, and so in that sense, it, it would be simply a result of its cult- the cultural context. Um, the other perspective, though, the complementarian one, <laughs> that in fact... Um, God has designed men for more leadership roles in the church, and that this it, it was was appropriate after the pattern or model of the Old Testament priesthood um, to have men in senior in this, the senior leadership position in his church. And I don't present any, any particular view because I present both of those side by side and share the strengths and weaknesses of, of both of them. But in mm-hmm. either case, whichever whichever one that you choose, um, 
I think Jesus is a great liberator of women, and he rec- and, and as as Paul says, in Christ there is neither Jew nor, nor Gentile, uh, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in, in Christ. Jesus certainly exalted the status of women. It's amazing how many people are <clears throat> today were want to say we want to go to the Gnostic Gospels where we have a more affirming, uplifting Jesus, as opposed to some of the sayings we find of synoptics. But when and in John, but when you go to the Gospel of Thomas and you get to the end, it says that Mary isn't worthy of the kingdom of heaven. I will. Yes. What? Hello. Yes. Yes. Go on. Yeah. yeah. It says Mary isn't worthy of the kingdom. I will take her. Because she's a woman, I would take her and make her a male so that she can be worthy of a kingdom of heaven like you males. And I'm like, okay, is this really the Jesus that you want to be uplifting where he says that women aren't worthy of a kingdom? But, hey, give me some time, I'll turn her into a man, and then she'll be worthy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Dan Brown in uh, The Da Vinci Code tried mm-hmm. to make it, tried to portray the Gnostics as great liberators of, of women. Yeah. And there are some streams. I think we, to be fair to the Gnostics, we should be fair to the Gnostics as well. Yeah. There are some streams that, that would, would have lifted up women leadership and that, you know, Mary Magdalene plays a prominent role in certain of the Gnostic Gospels and so, so forth. So I think we have to acknowledge that. But certainly the Gospel of Thomas is, is um, not pro-woman by any means and mm-hmm. certainly does not exalt or treat women as the equals of, of men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to remind everyone of this show before we go on to the number chapter. At this point, we what we you need to know is that uh, this show is listener supported by people like you, and we really thrive <clears throat> on your donations. If you want to donate, you can go to my website at deeperwaters.ddns.net, and there's a link there that says Help Support for Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And if you click on that link there, you'll be taken to the ministry of Risen Jesus. Have you gone to the right place? Yes. Yes, you have. You make your donation there, and then you contact me or Michael Debbie Lacona and say, Hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters, and we'll make sure you get it. And a lot of you were very generous, especially at the end of a year giving. And we really appreciate that, but we definitely ask that you please keep giving. Please keep supporting we really do try to make the most of what you give around here and it's very helpful especially as I do my own study and research to to have your support behind it and a lot of you have also been leaving more reviews on iTunes and I think it's excellent it's wonderful I I get thrilled every time I see it there's a new review there and I hope more of you will keep doing that you can also uh Buy some of the ebooks that I've got for sale on Amazon. Some I've written, some I've co-written. One I've written is Look at the Apostles' Creed, a creed for the ages. And books I've co-written include ones like Defining Inerrancy or God and Natural Disasters, Debate for an Atheist on a Problem of Evil. And the oh, Groundless, a look at the work of Dan Barker. And then you can go to the jewelry store. Yeah, we've actually got a jewelry store at Deeper Waters. You click on the link of support us. We are purchasing jewelry and you buy some jewelry via access code LOVE and you get in touch with me or Lena Clester who sells it and says, hey, uh, I want to go to Nick Peters at Deeper Waters. Whatever you purchased, 25% of that will go 
to help us out. Now, now, that seems like a good deal, guys. You can get your ladies a very, something very, very special that they will really like, and at the same time, you'll be supporting a ministry. Everyone wins that way. Now, Dr. Strauss, do you have any organization you'd like to see people support or donate to? Well, let me just mention one. I, I don't normally promote this, but um, my, my, my father was a pastor for 30 years, had a mm-hmm. very effective preaching ministry, and his he went to be with the Lord about 20 years ago now um, from cancer. But his, his whole preaching ministry is on tape at a place, at a website called spiritualgold.org. Just really solid, sound, expository preaching, um, going through most of the Bible over uh, that many years, and just available free for download. Um, and people can contribute if they'd like to, to listen to that and see it as a positive ministry. They can contribute to that. It's called spiritualgold.org. Uh, O-R-G. Yeah, I just did a web search to just type in spiritual gold, and you can find it a bit for Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Richard L. Strauss. Yeah, it's a it's a great site, and, and especially for people who don't have access to good Bible teaching, and it's a, a lot of people use that as as their access to good expository preaching. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, so if you all want to donate to that, go to spiritualgold.org, and I will encourage you to do that as well. You know, this next one is really surprising to think about. Was Jesus anti-Semitic? And it, it, it kind of blows your mind to think people would say this, because Jesus himself <laughs> was a Jew. So why would he go around having a hatred for Jews? But yet there are some people who think that because of the uh, anti-Semitism in the church that can sadly take place. And maybe some of the things that Jesus says in John's Gospel about the Jews. It's about, you know, you are of your father, of a devil. You've been lying from the beginning just like he has been lying. What's going on? Why is Jesus so anti-Semitic, or is he? Yeah. Yeah, and of course, if you look at the history of Christianity, as you just mentioned, there's, there's no doubt. Um, that there has been a strong stream of anti-Semitism that has resulted in horrific atrocities, pogroms in the past, and of course, much of the Nazi Holocaust was just, justified, um, at least by certain uh, German theologians who claimed, claimed um, you know, the, the Jews killed Jesus and so should be killed. So this was anti-Semitism has run through the history of the Church. We, we talk about some of it, even um, you know, even Martin Luther. Um, great Protestant reformer, especially in his later writings, was was very strongly anti-Jewish. He wanted to convert the Jews when when many would not convert. He he really turned and with you know some provocations even to, to violence. So it's it's a it's a terrible history that we've seen throughout the, the church history in this. And where do they get this? Well, some have argued they get it right out of the Bible. Um, I remember when. Um, Bell Gibson's Passion of the Christ came out. I um, met with a number of Jewish leaders who were very concerned because it, it seemed to be presented to be such a strongly anti-Semitic presentation of the Jewish religious leaders. And and much of that comes from the Gospel of John, where um, over and over again it said Jesus against the Jews. The Jews said this, Jesus said this. There's these debates between Jesus and the Jews. And as, as you pointed out, Nick, it doesn't make much sense. It's Jesus was a Jew, since his disciples mm-hmm. are Jews. It's not Jesus versus the Jews. It's Jews versus the Jews, because Jesus himself is Jewish. And how do, how do we respond uh, to this? I think, and there's two answers to that, um, 
two parallel answers. Uh, one is that when the word eudioi, which is tra often translated Jews, is used in John's Gospel, it often doesn't mean all Jews. It means a particular group of Jesus' opponents, those Jewish leaders that opposed him. And so many translations, in fact, like the, the NIV, the, the revised NIV and the New Living Translation, well, instead of translating it to Jews, they'll translate it to Jewish leaders when it refers to that very select group who are opposing Jesus. And so sometimes it, it means that and, and probably should be translated that way. Uh, the other answer to the question, though, is we have to realize that John is writing his gospel somewhat later, at a time when the church and the synagogue, the, the Jews and the, the, the Christians, now view themselves as distinct from the Jews, whereas certainly Christianity is, is really a, a reform movement within Judaism. It came out of Judaism. The original Christians all viewed themselves as Jews. The Apostle Paul would never say, I became a Christian and converted from Judaism. Rather, his Judaism was completed or fulfilled through, through his, his faith in Christ. And so, but by the time John writes, there's an increasing chasm between the church and the synagogue. And so his gospel, to a certain extent, reflects that chasm, so that he does refer to the Jews um, sort of with an eye on the present debates that are going on in his, his church. So the two answers are that, that even in Jesus' context, the Jews often means the Jewish leaders, not all Jews. And secondly, that John is writing at a time of increased animosity between Jews and Christians. I'd like to move ahead to the next chapter because, I mean, these next two are so important, especially the last one. And this next one goes back to something that Bertrand Russell and many other skeptics have spoken about. And in fact, one that even C.S. Lewis himself wrestled with is, how can we trust Jesus as a prophet when he couldn't even get right the time of his own return? Because, I mean, Jesus says, this generation will not pass away. And so many people say, well, that was, you know, nearly 2,000 years ago. It looks like we're still here. And then, by contrast, you unfortunately see people embarrassing the church today, such as the saying, the blood moon, something big is about to happen. <laughs> and yep. nothing does. So what, yep. what's going on here? Yeah, and these apocalyptic movements have been part of Christianity throughout the centuries, and I think it's it's always dangerous. I would just say it this way from the beginning. It's always dangerous uh, to read prophecy with the newspaper in one hand, because mm. you're always going to be wrong if you're trying to interpret prophecy through contemporary events, through current, current events. And people are writing books constantly trying to say, this is it, this is it, and they're always wrong. But where yeah. did they get that idea? Was, was <laughs> Jesus doing that same thing? That's what this this chapter challenges, um, and I, I examine claims by people like Bart Ehrman, but many others as well, who, who would argue that Jesus was, in fact, an apocalyptic prophet. He was a prophet who expected the soon end of the world. He expected God's kingdom to intervene very shortly, um, but he was not. He was not right. He was a failed apocalyptic prophet. Ultimately, events overtook him. He was arrested, summarily tried, and executed, and that was the end. Uh, end of the story. And so this that chapter, um, um, chapter 11, examines whether Jesus was a failed prophet. And then the last part of the chapter looks at those difficult sayings, like when he says, um, he, he says that, uh, you know, this generation will not pass away until all these things are fulfilled. And what we point out throughout the chapter was that the kingdom of God, did the kingdom arise? Some would argue, well, no, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom, but the kingdom never did arise. 
Um, but we, we point out that the, the concept of the kingdom is a more complex concept than we sometimes think. In fact, the kingdom arrives in stages. And as we trace Jesus' ministry, Jesus' teaching, and the teaching of the apostles after him, we see those various stages, the process through which the kingdom is established. And it's all related to this theme of, of the gospel and the, the message of the kingdom as the restoration of creation. The kingdom is arriving in Jesus' words and deeds as he heals the sick. These are snapshots of God's restoration, the kingdom. Uh, the kingdom arrives through Jesus' death, his sacrificial death on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, bringing forgiveness, establishing the new covenant, um, establishing a new Passover. All of that is part of the establishment of the kingdom, the restoration. Uh, the kingdom arrives through the resurrection um, as the Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of the end-time resurrection, the final resurrection. It's, he's the first fruits of the resurrection. So the kingdom is arriving through his resurrection. Uh, the kingdom arrives 40 days later on the day of Pentecost when, when the Spirit is poured out in fulfillment of Scripture, because in the Old Testament it says that the pouring out of the Spirit will be the, the sign of the end times, the sign of the arrival of God's kingdom. And then ultimately it will be established through the second coming when Christ returns. So it's a process, a process through which the kingdom comes and, and through, its, through which salvation is established. Now, I intentionally left one out because it's the most controversial of these, and that is that the kingdom also arrives in some sense in A.D. 70, mm -hmm. uh, when Jerusalem and the temple is destroyed. And this is the hardest for some people to understand or believe, but I think it's, it's very clear. We've been talking earlier when Jesus clears the temple. What is he doing? He's symbolically destroying the temple. Part of the establishment of God's salvation, part of the coming of the kingdom, is the end of the old sacrificial system and the establishment of the new temple in Christ. Well, part, part of that process is the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, a result of Israel's rejection of their Messiah. So we should not be surprised that some of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom and the coming of the kingdom is related to the destruction of Jerusalem. So I would argue that when Jesus says uh, this, the kingdom will not come, this generation, excuse me, this generation will not pass away until the kingdom is established, he's referring specifically to the destruction of Jerusalem, which mm -hmm. occurred within one generation or so um, of his of his words and, and of his death. And so I think some of the more difficult statements that look like the kingdom is coming in the very near future uh, can be point, pointing forward to AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem. So the answer, I think, it's, it's a reasonable answer because it, it takes into account uh, the nature of, of God's salvation in the Old Testament, the nature of the atonement, the, the establishment of the... Um, uh, the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, uh, the atoning death of Christ on the cross. Um, all of these are part of the establishment of the kingdom of God. Yeah, you're not going to find much disagreement from me here on that point. I, I happen to be an Orthodox preterist in my eschatology, and this is one of my favorite kind of topics to discuss. It, I mean, if you want to ask if there's any secondary doctrine or interpretation I enjoy discussing in Christianity, it's this one. It's end time stuff. It, it's so much fun to talk about. And I'm remembering my wife sent me a video she found by an atheist online going to the uh, Transfiguration passage right before it. And he said, Say, some people here will not t 
pass away before they see the kingdom of God come in power. He said, see, Jesus said he would return before some people would die. And I just think I said, son, he nowhere in there says he will return. He just says the kingdom of God will come. That doesn't mean return. And then when I look at the Arvid discourse, I say, Jesus isn't talking about a return. He's talking about his coming. I mean, for one point, the disciples, at this point, they weren't expecting Jesus to be crucified, let alone crucified, risen again, and then ascend into heaven and come back some later times. So when they hear him talk about his coming, they're wondering, okay, we're going near Jerusalem. You're obviously going to take the throne, so uh, when, when's it going to be? What are the signs are going to be? I think I think you're exactly right. That that's that's that we have to recognize that Jesus is often talking um, mm -hmm. about events that are going to take place related to the destruction of Jerusalem. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I used to work for Hank Hanegraaff at the Christian Research Institute. Oh, there, sure. There was a time, and he he comes to a similar position. There was a time when uh, I was at SES as a student fan, and uh, Bill Maher, I think it was. Oh, no, Michael Spencer it was. Yeah, it was Michael Spencer came. And after they, uh, after he got done having his debate with Dinesh D'Souza, he uh, he went out with uh, Hank Hanegraaff and Hank's right-hand man, Stephen Ross, and he said, you know, one of the things I want to ask you all as Christians is, how can you believe in Jesus when you didn't even get right the time of his return? I'm like, oh, the irony of them asking, of him being asked, asking them that question when he answered he said they said you know I have never heard anything like that before <laughs> yeah of course Hank is a, is a preterist is he not yeah he he'd say he, I don't think he'd use that exact title I mean he refers to use something like exegetic or eschatology and say no no it, it's preterism I mean when I went in for my job interview with them and they found out I was an SES student and said are there uh, any uh, any doctrines or teachings that SES that you, you think you're strongly tied to because SES was really very much pre-trib pre-mare dispensation I just said I'm an orthodox preterist said, oh okay we can go on then <laughs> but let me tell you a brief story about that years ago um, I wrote an article together with a geologist uh, named Steve Austin um, on earthquakes in the end times, and um, it was published in the, uh, in their their journal, the, the CRJ Journal. Is that right? Christian Research Journal. Yeah, mm -hmm. the CRJ Journal. And Hank had us on on his program, and you know, he was very interested because we were we were basically refuting the idea that earthquakes were have been dramatically increasing, which is a sure sign of the end times. Mm -hmm. Jesus never said that earthquakes would necessarily increase. He said these are non-signs of the end, and, and the geologists demonstrated that, in fact, earthquakes were not increasing so rapidly. But at that time, Hank was really wrestling with that, and I know was heading in that in that direction and, and, and thinking of adopting more of a Predator's perspective, so it's interesting. Mm -hmm. If anyone's interested in hearing a little bit more about this, let's go back last year when I had Dee Dee Warren come on, who wrote the book, it's not the end of a world. A commentary on Matthew 24. It is the most in-depth commentary I think you will ever find. Right, so if you're interested in more in this eschatology, go there. But now, Mark, we, Mark Strauss, we have to come to the, the big one here. The ultimate question, the question that if 
this one question is wrong. Everything else we've been discussing is just interesting trivia. And that's the question of, was Jesus ultimately who he said he was, and did he do what he said he'd do, based on the question, did Jesus rise? Yeah, of course, the, the greatest question of all, and mm-hmm. everything everything ultimately depends on on that ultimate question, because mm-hmm. if Jesus rose from the dead, then in fact God vindicated all that he said and all that he did, and if he did not rise from the dead, then then all that he said and he did makes makes little difference. Paul makes that mm-hmm. so clear in yeah. 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 15. So yeah, so in this chapter we... we um, set up the paradox, is he a decaying corpse, or is he a resurrected Lord? And what I do in this chapter is I, I want to be honest with people, and of course, you know, if you read Bart Ehrman on this topic, he'll point out all the apparent contradictions between the resurrection accounts and so forth. And so I, I present, you know, some of the challenges related to that. Um, Mark's Gospel presents a very mysterious account of the resurrection, where uh, the, the women um, come to the empty tomb. They discover the empty tomb. An angel is there, a young man, actually, who announces the resurrection. Um, but there's no resurrection appearances in, in our earliest copies of Mark's Gospel. That's a puzzling thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other Gospels fill in the details, but not all the details seem to line up perfectly. And, and you can harmonize them, but it takes some work to harmonize them. So I present, I, I, I wanna, we want to honestly present that information. But then, but then I turn to the question, but what can we know for sure? Um, and I really set out five, what I would say, and, um, and Michael Lacona does a great job with, with this evidence, of course, but um, the, I, I set out five what I would say are indisputable facts related to the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that Jesus was, in fact, crucified and that he died, that he, that, that, that he died. I think the death of Christ by crucifixion is one of the most indisputable facts there is. The, Even the John that, that he was, had said that. He, that's right. Even John Dominic Crossan would admit, would admit to that. Uh, the, the, the fact that he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And that's such an important point, because, of course, Crossan would not agree with that. He would right. say, um, like common criminals, he was you know, eaten by dogs or left on the, tomb, on the, on the cross. Um, this is the way they, they did crucifixion. Bart and, Ehrman and, would say the same thing nowadays. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yet the evidence, it seems to me, is overwhelming that he was, in fact, um, buried in, in, in the tomb. The name Joseph of Arimathea has no symbolic significance. Uh, it appears in all of our, you know, um, in multiple sources that, that mm-hmm. he was buried in the tomb. So who would create this episode? Um, but, of course, if you – they don't want the empty tomb because if you don't have – or they don't want the burial because if you don't have the burial, you don't have the empty tomb. Mm-hmm. And that's the third indisputable fact, that the tomb was discovered empty. Uh, the fact that women, of course, discovered the tomb um, mm-hmm. seems to me overwhelming evidence that the accounts have historical validity because women were not considered reliable witnesses in first century Judaism. Mm-hmm. So um, that, that's and then the 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 fourth is the resurrection appearances that the, the disciples um, believed beyond doubt that they had seen Jesus alive. Um, even um, and even David Friedrich Strauss, the great critic of Christianity, acknowledged that the disciples believed that they had seen Jesus alive. He didn't believe in the resurrection, but he, he, he acknowledged that this fact was, was reality. Mm-hmm. And finally, fifth, the changed lives, the transformation that clearly took place in the disciples. Um, people are willing to die for something they believe, uh, they believe to be true, um, 
but they're well, yeah, people are not willing to die for something that, that they know is not true, however. Yeah. And so these disciples firmly believed they, that Jesus was alive, and they were willing to suffer and die even even for that. Mm-hmm. So I think that in this last chapter, we, we sort of um, we say Christianity has all the eggs in one basket, and it is a Easter basket. And, mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. the, that um, confirmation of who Jesus is ultimately is, is the resurrection. Now, before we discuss these points forever, I'd like to uh, everyone, you can look back on some of the past shows we discussed some of these things. Uh, we've had Gary Habermas on back in 2013 around Easter talk about the resurrection, and we're going to do that again. This year, he's going to be back on on March 26th. It's going to be a two-hour interview with Gary Habermas on the resurrection. He, 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 he told me he, he knows a little bit about it, but he's going to study it a little bit more just for my show. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's very generous of him. And then on uh, June 29th of 2013, we had Mike Lacona come on to talk about the resurrection. And yes, Mike Lacona will be on later on this year again for his regular visit whenever his new book comes out. I've already told him, I get first interview, okay? <laughs> now, very good, very when, good. When it comes to the barrier of Jesus, back on August 22nd last year, we had Greg Manette come on talk about his about his research because he's doing his PhD research on the burial of Jesus so if you want to hear the case that Jesus was buried go listen to that and right now I, I am interested in getting the possibility of having Craig Evans come back on again to talk about a book he's had come out recently and people get your hands on this book if you want to understand Jesus and archaeology it's the Jesus and the remains of his day and this is just a tour de force in archaeology. And if you want to know about the barrier of Jesus, the empty tomb and such, yeah, go get this one. It's it's helpful all around. And, you know, something else I'd say about this is when I ask people about the resurrection, some people will say, you know, I'll disbelieve in resurrection if you can show me the bones of Jesus. And I think, you know, that one's not entirely fair because chances are if Jesus hadn't raised, the bones would already be decayed. So you don't really have a good case there. You don't really have a way you can show your case is disprovable and such. I always tell people, can you give me a better explanation for the rise of the early church? than the ones that the the apostles themselves gave. And to me, it's not just interesting that the apostles came to believe in the appearance claims and such, but that anyone outside of the apostolic circle came to believe. Because Christianity, if you were making a religion in the first century, Christianity broke all the rules of what you would do to make a religion. It, It was by for an honor shame culture of a day, it was an utterly shameful religion. And yet the people that are joining it, a lot of them are middle and upper class people who have a whole lot to lose if Christianity is false and yet they join the movement. I mean that that's really incredible. Yeah, absolutely. I think um the the idea that you would create a, a religion around a crucified criminal Mm-hmm. A crucified Jew um, is is absurd, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and um, what could have 
transform those individuals um, into the boldest witnesses who are willing to suffer and die for their faith. Um, I think that there can only be one one answer, and that is they had seen Jesus alive, and they truly believed he was the Messiah, vindicated, resurrected, and vindicated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anytime I look at these other theories nowadays, so many of them are just so surprisingly weak, and they often just hang on other things, like they say, well, you know, there are contradictions in the Gospels, and like, well, even if I granted that, I'm not marrying my Christianity to inerrancy, so that doesn't really convince me. And then, of course, uh, I, I just adore it when people today say things like, well, we know dead people stay dead. And I just want to say, look, I hate to tell you this, but ancient people, they buried their dead also because yeah. they knew <laughs> dead people stay dead just as well. I'm always amazed when people bring in things like modern science to argue against the miracles of the Bible. Say, yeah, you, you think they didn't know what it took to make a baby? Or you think they didn't know that people walk on water? They knew all these things. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And the idea that, that ancient primitive people were completely gullible, it's mm-hmm. it's interesting that they're always shocked and surprised and amazed at Jesus' miracles. Have you noticed mm-hmm. that? It's not they don't say, ho-hum, these happen all the time. Yeah. Or ho-hum, you know, this is just part of the spirit world. They are shocked and amazed. They're shocked and amazed because they have the same kind of healthy skepticism that we do today. Yeah. That, you know, you, you want to you confirm a miracle. Yeah. You don't just accept it face value. Yeah, no, I think I think that's a great point. Yeah, and when we talk about people being gullible, I mean, how many of us have been online and seen the memes going around with Jesus being compared to Horus and Dionysus and Mithras and everyone else and saying, yeah, so I thought we've still got gullible people today who just believe anything because they read it on the internet or they saw it on a Wikipedia entry or anything like that. They they don't even bother to go out and study the claims themselves. They just say, well, it, it looks like so many of them have this rule of, I read this claim, it argues against Christianity. Since it argues against Christianity, it must be true. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's that's the case. Mm-hmm. I think if people will um, will examine it um, from a more neutral position and, and just seek the evidence and the facts, they're going to come up with, with positive answers. Mm-hmm. Now, when we've uh, gone through this whole thing about uh, looking at Jesus, I mean, what are the things that we, we should walk away with after this look at the historical Jesus this way when we've seen that critics have made a lot of claims about how Jesus has behaved badly and they haven't they haven't met the past the test or anything but we should still walk away with something else positive shouldn't we what do you want people to walk away with after they've read the book well at the end of the book I just say I just challenge them to go further in other words if this has piqued their interest in Jesus I, I think we, we do um, whitewash Jesus in the church in some ways. We, we do present, you know, a, a, a sterilized version that doesn't really deal with some of the nitty-gritty passages. And so, um, you know, hopefully by, by drawing people in, by, sh- by showing them the culture, the context, the background, the history, the setting of Jesus, it will pique an interest that, that, uh, that Jesus was a revolutionary figure um, and that, that his, his message does have... Um, substance and significance, uh, not just for a first century audience, but for us today. 
and and so just I, I want them to to examine Jesus both as a historical figure, mm-hmm. um, as, as well as as the living Lord. Mm-hmm. It does seem too often that when we're in the church, we come with this idea that you know Jesus, he was someone who was. Well, aside from being God and Messiah, he was someone who was just like us. He shared our values. He shared our belief. He shared our mm-hmm. customs. And it, it makes us think, why should we really bother to study Jesus historically? But really, I mean, if we want to be developed Christians, there's hardly a more exciting topic to talk about, is there? Right, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think there is a great deal of misunderstanding because we do have a tendency to read him to, to read and understand, even Christians have a tendency to read yeah. and understand Jesus through through our 21st century eyes instead of through first century eyes. Um, and most of us recognize that we need to understand the Old Testament. We need to understand the Hebrew Scriptures. Um, but I'm not sure we really understand what that, what that means. That means not just the words, not just the books, uh, um, not just the paragraphs, but in fact the world in which these documents were written to understand the culture, the background, the setting, uh, the, the religious uh, trajectories and, and um, various movements of the first century help us to better understand Jesus' message and, this, and mission. Mm. Now, Dr. Strauss, you've been studying for, I think you said, like 20 years or so at a high academic level. I mean, what was your Christian life like before then, and how has it changed as a result of your study of historical Jesus? Right, that's that's a great question. Um, well, I, as I mentioned before, I was raised in a Christian home, so I've been a part of a Christian community for as long as I remember. But mm-hmm. but I was also a PK, a preacher's kid, and so Christianity, I, I knew all the answers, I knew all the words, I knew, you know, I I, I could do my Christianity on autopilot. Um, and um, there came a time when I sort of walked away from that because. It, it wasn't my personal faith. It was the faith of my family, the faith of my my culture. And so coming back and discovering Jesus myself and, and meeting him again for the first time, if you will, um, w- was really a, a significant thing for me. Um, in early college, um, I got involved um, in a Christian ministry that, that for the first time I really learned what it meant to serve, and I think I really experienced um, Christ through his body, and, and that, that was a transforming um, experience for me. And then um, it was a gradual then movement. As I said, I was a psychology major, so it was a gradual movement in the academic world. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think, you know, some, some people say, you know, if you, if you go there, some people in the church are afraid. They're afraid to go deeper because they're afraid of what they'll discover. And I think many Christian leaders even, you know, they're afraid of higher level biblical scholarship. Uh, yeah. The joke is often that don't go to, don't go to seminary, you'll lose your faith if you go to seminary. Mm-hmm. Um, and be, because you, you learn things, you learn that there's a lot of gray um, in there. It's not all black and white. It's not all as clear as it might have been. It's not all the simple pat answers that we sometimes hear, or the simple apologetics that we sometimes hear in church. Um, but what what has been really encouraging for me over the years in terms of academic scholarship is, is I feel like the, the deeper you go, the richer it gets. You may not have the same black and white, simple answers, pat answers to everything, um, but the deeper you go into the Christian faith, into its history, into its context, into its culture, into its message, uh, the deeper and richer is, is your faith. 
you don't have to see everything um, as black and white or, or see everything, you know, as simple answers. Uh, when I hear statements, you know, like every um, every accusation of an apparent contradiction has been absolutely answered by archaeology or something. Well, that simply isn't the case. That simply mm-hmm. isn't true. There's, there's a lot we don't know. We can't prove the historicity of most of the events in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we need to, what we can demonstrate, I think, is the general reliability of the Gospel tradition. And if we can demonstrate that, we can, we can demonstrate the basic message and mission of Jesus. Mm-hmm. If we can demonstrate that, we can confirm that, in fact, he accomplished what he claimed to accomplish. Yeah. And so I think we come out with a richer, more meaningful, more robust Christianity um, if we enter into it, not only from a spiritual perspective, but from an academic perspective. Yeah, it always amazes me when I meet people who are afraid to go deeper, to learn more about the subject they love. I, mean, I just want to ask, would you be scared to learn more about your spouse then? And you want to just say, honey, I know enough about you. I don't want to know any more. Let's just stick with where we are. <laughs> no no good husband or wife should want to say that. But yet, when we come to Jesus, we say it's supposed to be the most important question in our lives or the question of God. We say, yeah, I've, I've got enough. Yep, yep. It's, there's no doubt that the message of salvation is a simple message, um, but it's also profound and deep, and we can never, ever stop learning. Every Every time I return to a text, I... I learn something new, and I, I grow in, into a deeper knowledge of it. So. Yeah. And we can also say that some people out there listening might be scared because it's such academic work, but today you can be an informed person in many ways <laughs> by reading popular-level books like yours that are put out there to help just for laymen and the pew learn. I mean, one of the things I do when I read a book is I try and think, if I was just a layman in the pew, would I really be able to get what's being said in this book? Yeah, yeah, and there's there's an amazing wealth of resources. There's never been a better time in terms of simple, clear, accurate resources um, for biblical studies, whether it's Bible dictionaries, whether it's basic, clear commentaries, um, or historical background books. There's just a wealth of of excellent material out there. No excuse for not knowing, <laughs> knowing the basics. Well, I'd like to remind one that if you're wanting to get this book, and yeah, we've looked at pretty much every chapter in the book, but don't think we've exhausted it. There is a whole lot in there that you need to get your hands on, and if you've really liked this interview, please get the book. If you haven't liked it, please get the book anyway, because it's such a great book. But, but <laughs> I'm looking on Amazon right now, and as of the time of this recording, the paperback is thirteen oh three, and you can get it on Kindle for nine nine nine. Which I'd also say, if we're talking about things being easier to have access to, Kindle has definitely made it easy to get really good books at really great prices. So please go and purchase the book Jesus Behaving Badly. You can find that many great bookstores and such. But I've just told you about that on Amazon. Oops, Ralph, we we are going to have to come to a close. though. um, do you have a uh, a website or an email or some way people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? Well, they can certainly contact me by email. Um, I'm, I'm easy to find on the web, but, but if my email address is just m-strauss at bethel.edu. Um, but I also, I, I don't have a personal website any longer right now, but I do have a Faith Life website with Lagos Bible Software, and so 
That one is spacelight.com forward slash mark-l-strauss. And so they can easily connect with me there mm-hmm. if they would like to. And do you have any final message you'd like to leave with Evil Waters audience? No, let me just encourage them, especially if they're skeptics, that um, it, it's it's an exciting field. It's an interesting um, discussion. Um, get to know who this Jesus was. Um, the facts might surprise you. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Strauss, I'd like to thank you for coming on, and hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Thanks, Nick. It's been great to be with you. Uh-huh. Right. Remind everyone that uh, next week we're going to have J.C. Middleton on. We're talking about near-death experiences. So now... I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off.